Well, again, good morning and welcome, those of you who are in the room, those of you who are joining us online, either now or later. Uh, glad uh, to be with you. It's uh, it's kind of the kickoff, as Nick mentioned, it's the kickoff for uh, our ministry year. There's a lot of exciting things happening. I hope you can join us uh, today at four. Uh, Rock the Block is just a ton of fun. It's just it's. It, this church knows how to throw a good party, so uh, we do we do we do this well. Uh, I also it's a great day because uh, there's new st- they've been in the room before, but this time first time where well, they're being paid to be here, uh, and that is Karis and her husband Terrence. Car- Terrence isn't being paid, but Karis is our new director of women's ministry, and we're so glad to welcome them. You'll actually get to know them a little bit next week. I'll introduce uh, Karis from the stage, and and Nick will interview Nick will interview her. Um, but as I said, if you watched my Friday video, there's all this great news in our church, excitement, everything's kicking off, the church is growing, we bought a house, I mean, there's, it's, it's a really great time in our church's life, and there's a lot going on. At this moment, three of our babies are in the NICU at Evanston, three, that's, that's crazy. Uh, several of you have had parents or grandparents die in the last week or are dying now. And I know there are many of you with severe uh, issues in your life, including, including cancer. So there's a, it's like the best of times and the worst of times. There's a lot of heaviness in our church, and there's a lot of joy. And so how do we hold on to that? Uh, what do we do when it's, when it's both good and bad? Well, we look to the Lord. We look to the Lord who is both uh, familiar with our suffering and a man of sorrows, but also the one who is the wine-bibber and brings us the joy of the feast. So let's go to him and look to him as we, uh, as we open this uh, shocking text, quite frankly. Jesus, we come to you this morning as, uh, as a preacher. Uh, you are the preacher in this text. We see you doing so many other things in the gospel Uh, praying and healing, uh, but here you preach. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we look at this. Um, It's just a perplexing text in so many ways, uh, but so life-giving. And I pray that we would find just that, words of life. We pray this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Well, again, this is a sermon, uh, a sermon about a sermon. and the, the verses that Debbie just read, it's, it's about a preacher, Jesus as a preacher. We think of Jesus in these different roles, but this is Jesus as a preacher. And uh, as preachers, we're kind of weird. I know that we're weird, and you don't always know how to relate to us, uh, and you're right to not know what to do with us all the time. And so sometimes when preachers are together, uh, we kind of like, there's like the, every profession probably has this, but there's like this gallows humor among uh, preachers. And one of my, uh, this, this acquaintance of mine, this uh, friend of mine from years he, uh, he's, he likes to ask the question, you know, in groups of when we're all together, like, what would it take for your church to fire you without you doing anything immoral or sinful? Like, what could you do uh, that was not immoral, not irresponsible, not sinful, but they would fire you? And his favorite answer is, I would just, without comment, I would just start wearing a cape around town. Just, <laughs> just walk around town in a cape. I hope you would fire me. But seriously, look at this story. Look at the end of this story. We're going to start at the end a little bit here in the introduction. Jesus is in his hometown. He is preaching his first sermon in his hometown. It's presumable that his mother and his family are around. He's preaching his first sermon. His family's around. They're in the room. They're in the room. And his hometown church, because of what he says... 
tries to kill him. Now think about that for a second. They try to kill him. I mean, I've wondered, I mean, this is back to a little bit of humor. What could I say that would make you want to kill me? I, I, I just don't know. But seriously, what is it about what he says that makes this group of people want to kill him? Throw him off a cliff. Now, we're kind of in the beginning weeks of a sermon series that we're calling Jesus Unexpected, the Gospel of Luke. Jesus Unexpected. And I've said that Jesus is so unexpected. He's so fresh. And, I, you know, I think he's unexpected for people who are new and investigating him. You're, you're, maybe you're a skeptic here this morning and you're looking at Jesus. You've thought about him. You've heard about him. And you want to know a little bit more. I actually think that this passage is more unexpected for those of us who have known Jesus for a long time and have followed him, which is to say, I think this is just as unexpected, maybe more so for the Christians, the followers of Jesus. Now, the first several weeks of this sermon series have been the first couple chapters of the Gospel of Luke. They've been prelude. We've seen Jesus' incarnation. We've seen this uh, figure who goes before, John the Baptist. Last week, we looked at Jesus being baptized and being tempted in the wilderness. But now, it's, it's game day, you know, like it is for the Bears Day. It is game time. The preseason is over. Luke chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his public ministry. He's 30 years old. This will end in his crucifixion. Uh, today's passage is about him proclaiming the good news in word. Next week, we'll see it's proclaiming the good news in power with his miracles. That's next week, okay? And both of them are somewhat like kind of riffing on this Isaiah 61 passage that we will look at. But with a story like this, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of questions in this text. But this is the question. What on earth did he say that made them want to kill him? Why do they want to kill him? Because of what he says. What is going on here? So to understand why, I'm just going to kind of tell the story. I've got a little bit of an outline, the background, the message, and the human heart. But really, I'm just going to kind of work us through this story to understand why they wanted to kill Jesus based on this sermon. First, the background. Now, I'm going to go big picture and then kind of narrow down to a building in Nazareth. So, big picture, the Jewish people at this time were in the northern part of Israel. If you know your, the geography of the Middle East, they're up by the Sea of Galilee in a little town called Nazareth. Uh, but at that time, all of Judea, and this has been true for some time, is under the thumb of the Romans, okay? So, they are being, uh, they're, they're They're taxed by the Romans. They're ruled by the Romans. The Romans use crucifixion to show their power to the Jews. So they'll hang these naked people along the streets and say, don't mess with us. That's why people like Pontius Pilate and Herod are in the Gospels because the Romans are very much in charge. They're very much in charge. And the Jewish people are not terribly happy about this. Can you imagine a foreign power who doesn't speak your language, doesn't have your religion, and taxes you is in control? You would not be very happy. Now, there's several ways to respond to this, and in the first century, there were kind of four main parties or four main sects, and they all dealt with the Romans in a little bit different way. The one that we hear probably the least about in the New Testament are the Essenes, and we don't hear much about the Essenes because they actually, their response to Roman rule was to move away. They moved out into the desert, out into the wilderness. We really only know about them because of things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? So the Essenes, they moved away. They're going to maintain their Jewish purity by getting away from the Romans and moving to the wilderness where the Romans really are not going to meddle with them, okay? 
Another way of responding to the Jewish, uh, to the Roman rule, was to be a Pharisee or to think like a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees didn't move away, but they, ve- they were very conscious about maintaining their purity in face of the Roman oppression. They were going to maintain their Jewishness, okay? That's what it means to be a Pharisee, to maintain your Jewishness. In some ways, they were the cultural conservatives. They were the family values people, stood very strong. They engaged the Romans, but very much about maintaining their purity. Then you had a group of people. Third option of how to engage is the Sadducees. The Sadducees. These people, they're playing the long game. They're like, let's assimilate with the Romans. Let's just go with the flow. We're the people of God. We've been around for a thousand years. You know, empires come, empires go. Let's just play the long game. We'll assimilate, and one day they will be gone, and we can have back our nation. They'll move on, okay? That's the third group. The fourth group, Jesus had one of these for one of his disciples, were the zealots. Uh, These folks wanted the Romans out by any means necessary. Uh, They embraced violence and guerrilla warfare, okay? So these are the kind of the four options. So if you want to think about it in our terms, it's a little bit loose. Uh, But the Essenes, they're kind of like the fundamentalist of their day. They kind of live in a bubble away from the culture. Uh, The Pharisees, they're kind of like us, a little bit like evangelical Christians, gospel Christians, uh, maintaining boundary markers but really trying to engage the culture, Sadducees are kind of like mainline churches, just kind of going along with things. And the zealots, uh, I I don't know if this is fair or not, but this is like both people on the left and the right, kind of the alt-right and the Antifa. They just want to burn stuff down, right? Uh, It's like the Batman quote, uh, Michael Caine character, sun people just want to watch the world burn. And that's a little bit like the zealots, except they have an end to their their burning. They want uh, power back. But what's key about all four of these groups, though, all four of these groups, and you need to understand this, when you're working your way through the Gospels, it's not just like... There's no context. There is a social and political context. And those are the four main sects or, or parties. But each of those four different ways of looking at the Romans and looking at culture, but there's something they all have in common. And that is this. They all looked for and wanted a Messiah to come. They all wanted a Messiah to come. And all of them, all four models of Jews, they told themselves a story like this. We are the good people. We're the good people, and we need the Messiah to come and deliver us by kicking the bad people out, which is mostly the Romans. We're good. We need a Messiah to come and deliver us and kick the bad people out, the Romans, okay? All of them had some sort of narrative like this. That's the story they're living in. So when Jesus, like, no preacher ever walks to a stage without, like, without a context. You might not know the context, but you're always talking to people who have a story, and they're hearing you through a certain lens, just like you're hearing me through a certain lens, right? I'm always trying to think what that is. Actually, I try not to think too much about that. But, um, so that's the lens through which they're hearing Jesus, one of these four ways, okay? He, when he walks into this building, Okay, so verses 14 and 15, by this point, Jesus has been baptized in the Jordan River. He's been tempted in the wilderness. Then he returns north. He returns north to Galilee, the district of Galilee, and he starts to get a reputation. He does some miracles, and he preaches in other places, places like Capernaum. But then he comes home. He comes to First Pres Nazareth to preach his first sermon. Now, here's the physical context. I think it's important to remember. There's been some excavation uh, of some of the, we don't know the Nazareth synagogue, but some of the synagogues around there, they were likely about 100 feet by 50 feet wide with benches down the sides. You could have fit as many as 350, 400 people in some of these synagogues because they were very tightly packed. There was possible at the front of the stage a seat of Moses. Maybe that's what Jesus sits on when he sits down. 
We do know about the synagogue service, and actually, you'll hear this, our worship service today is very much modeled on the synagogue services. Here's basically how a synagogue liturgy, a liturgy is like an order of worship, that's what we have. Uh, There always had to be 10 men present for a synagogue to worship. Um, There was always a singing of a psalm. There was the recitation of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, uh, Deuteronomy 6. There was the recitation of the 18 blessings. There was a reading from the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And then there would have also been a reading from the prophets. Then there would have been a sermon expounding that reading. And then there would have been a benediction. I mean, you can see how our worship service, in many ways, is reflective of synagogue worship. But in this case, Jesus is going into a building that he'd been raised going to church. He'd been going to this building. 30 years he'd been going there, right? Okay, he knew everybody in that room. They knew him, right? He'd spent his whole life around them. He'd eaten in their homes. They'd been in his home. They coached him in Little League, you know. Uh, they had watched him grow up. Maybe they'd noticed something different about him, the way they interacted with their own children. Uh, maybe they'd heard the stories about when he was 12 years old and in the temple and how much he knew about the Bible. They probably knew that he was the best student in Sunday school or synagogue school, whatever it was. They would have known this, okay. So, but this is his first sermon at First Pres Nazareth, okay. And he's been gone for a while. He's been gone traveling around. He's been preaching, They may have heard about the miracles. They may have even, there's indication from verse 14 that they knew something about this baptism thing in the Jordan River uh, down south. And some of the old timers in Nazareth, I mean, their suppositions, this young man's been special. I wonder if there's something, you know, kind of going on here in Nazareth. We got this, we got this young, this young whippersnapper here, all right? So when Jesus walks into that room with people that he knows to preach his first sermon to them, it is a moment that is just pregnant with drama. Right? Remember the big story. They are oppressed by the Romans, whom they hate. They want freedom and deliverance. They're hoping for it. And then this young man that they know stands up to preach his first sermon. And what's he going to preach on? You know, the, te- the, the preacher's dilemma. What is my text for this Sunday? And they hand him the scroll. They hand him the, the Old Testament scriptures. And it says he found, he went looking for this passage. He went looking for Isaiah 61. And he's standing up and he reads from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It is hard to imagine him picking a more pregnant passage with meaning. First of all, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's big, right? And then he says, I have been anointed. Now, anointing is language that is reserved for the high priest and the king. And he's saying, I have been anointed. And then that last little bit, he says, this is the year of the Lord's favor. Maybe you've heard the phrase, the jubilee year. Uh, The Old Testament roots are in Leviticus 25. There's no indication that it actually was ever enacted. Uh, But the the idea set out in the law of Moses was that every 50 years there was a year of jubilee. What happened in the year of jubilee? Everybody's debts were forgiven. All debts were forgiven. Uh, Your land went back to the initial family from whom it came. All the slaves were fret free, the indentured slaves. Everybody was set free. It was basically a reset every 50 years. That was the idea. The year of the Lord's favor. And by the way, debt and service, these were big deals back then. I mean, just a little aside, just to kind of give you a context. In 66 BC, about 30 years after this story, when the, when the Jewish revolt against Rome begins, 
the first thing the Jews do is they burn the records in the treasury. <laughs> they burn the records of the debts. And when Jesus says the year of the Lord's favor, they're thinking, I'm going to get my debts forgiven. My, my debt, it's going to be gone. Spirit of the Lord, anointing, year of jubilee, Lord's favor. This is messianic language. Little boys come home, and he's saying, I am the Messiah. I have come to put the world to rights. And here they sit. They're faithful. They're in church on Saturday morning, attending the synagogue, right? And amidst all this domination by this foreign power, this young man, they've been waiting for deliverance, and this young man that they know stands up and starts to say something like this, and they know he's been doing miracles. He reads this text. And then, this is such a dramatic moment. If you don't think Jesus is dramatic and he has a sense of, the, of Hollywood, he rolls up the scroll, hands it back, and then he sits down, which was a sign of authority, okay? And I love, verse 20 is like the obvious uh, verse, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. You think? <laughs> uh, you think? Okay. The hopes and dreams of a people appear to be realized The longings of a forlorn people are being met. The time has come. Messiah is here. We are going to be delivered. And oh, he's from our hometown. You know, somebody in the back of their mind is thinking, I'm going to put the sign up. You know, entering Nazareth, population 312, birthplace of Jesus, visitor center to the right. Except there's one thing missing. (laughs) There's one thing missing. These people had been in the, they know the Bible. They had heard the scripture. This is an oral culture. They don't have Bibles of their own. So they very much know the cadences of scripture, especially pregnant passages like this, especially passages about the deliverer. They knew this passage. They know how the end of this verse goes. And they know that Jesus has cut it off. I mean, yesterday I got the chance to go to a Cubs game. Great game, except for the fact that the Cubs lost. But beautiful day. It was a great day. But if you go to a Cubs game, part of the worship service, the liturgy is right. In the middle of the seventh inning, somebody takes a microphone and says what? One, two, three. Right, you got it. That's what, okay, thank you. Um, But that would have been in there. They know what happens next. They know what is next. And when Jesus cuts the quote off and says, he says, the day of the Lord's, the year of the Lord's favor, and then he stops. They knew what was next. They knew what the next line in Isaiah 61 verse 2 was. And he doesn't say it. And what was that word? The day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance, they, um, he omits that. They would have expected him to continue the quote, but he doesn't say the day of vengeance. What does this mean about their, our relationship to the Romans? Why does he not finish the quote? Why does he not talk about the day of vengeance? Hold that thought. We will finish with it. Because what does he say? What does he say? He finishes the year of the Lord's favor he rolls up the scroll, and then he sits down, most likely on the seat of Moses, and then he says, he's, looking, he's sitting down. should have put a chair up here. He sits down, and he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what, okay. Now, on the one hand, he is looking back. He is saying, I am the fulfillment of everything the Jewish scriptures the Old Testament have pointed to. I am the fulfillment. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, we'll get to this in the spring, in Luke chapter 24, um, Jesus basically says, everything that's in the Old Testament, everything that's in the Jewish scriptures, it's about me. And that's what he's saying here. But that's not all he's saying. He's not just making a comment about the past and the scriptures. He's also making a comment about the future of the world. Because when he says today, that word is loaded with significance. 
It is loaded with significance. It's used 11 times in Luke. And what it means is the kingdom has come. A new era has dawned. The salvation, the kingdom of God is here. It is an era when debts are forgiven. When there is healing. When there is redemption. When there is recovery. When there is forgiveness of sins. In short, the era of salvation has begun. Today, the scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying this. This, I. He's saying, I am the pivot point of history. The rightful king, the rightful Messiah has arrived, and I am he. Interestingly, they're not ready to kill him yet. Okay? They're not ready to kill him. In fact, verse 22, after he says that, look with me. It says, they spoke well of him, and they marveled at his gracious words. At this point, first sermon, hometown, everything seems to be going okay. But something goes sideways at the end of verse 22. And it's not totally clear, I don't think, honestly. But I think I know what's happening. Because at the end of verse 22, some of the people say, Is this not Joseph's son? Is this not Joseph? I mean, it, that's, the, that's the carpenter's old boy, isn't it? That's his eldest boy, right? Verse 23, Jesus reads through that question. And he hears what they're really asking. What he's saying is, you want miracle. You're hearing me preach. You've heard about my miracles. You want the power. You want me to show the miracles. Because it appears what they're saying is, this is great that you're telling us all this and saying all this, but now show us your power. Do hear what you did in Capernaum. And Jesus perceives they have not heard what he said. Jesus is preaching good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. And what they hear is, show us the miracle. We want the power. Throw the Romans out. Give us our nation back. Again, the story they tell themselves is we are the moral people and the Messiah has come to throw the bad people out. Now start showing us some of that power, Jesus. But Jesus knows they've missed his point. He knows he's missed his point, and so he does what all great teachers do. He illustrates. He tells a story. In fact, he tells two stories to interpret what he has said. The first story is a story of a widow. This story is told in 1 Kings 17. It's retold here in verses 25 and 26. There was a great famine, and the great prophet Elijah is really hungry. He's really hungry. And God says, go to this place in the far north, Zarephath or Sidon. Go to this region, basically, that is not Jewish, that does not worship me. Go up there and go to a widow's house. He goes to the widow's house. And to be a widow was to be poor. And he says to her, he basically says, feed me and you'll never be hungry again. She believes him somehow. And feeds him, and then her uh, jar of bread is replenished. Against all parental instincts, she has a son who's dying of hunger. She feeds Elijah first, uh, and then she actually is able to eat. She accepts. She's needy, and she accepts the word of the Lord. The second story that Jesus tells is that was a poor person, a, a woman impoverished. The second story he tells is of somebody who's very powerful and wealthy, and an enemy of the state, the great Arab general Naaman the Syrian. This story is told in 2 Kings 5. He's the general of the Syrian army, he, which is to say he hates the Israelites, but he has leprosy, and he hears that there's somebody in Israel that can heal him, a guy named Elisha. There's this little thing going on where Jesus is fulfilling both Elijah and Elisha, but this is Elisha, okay? 
And Elisha basically says to this hated enemy, this general, go wash in the Jordan River. The guy resents at first. He's, he's put off. He's offended. But he eventually submits. He goes to the River Jordan. He washes himself. His leprosy is clean. And he actually goes back and he says, I promise I will keep worshiping God even when I am back with the Syrians. End of story. End of sermon. But not end of what's happening. The crowd is outraged. Let me just read verses 28 through 30. Imagine this at the end of a sermon. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. They're so mad, they try to throw him over the cliff. The sermon is finally clear to them, and they want to kill him for two reasons. They want to kill him for two reasons. What he says about them and what he says about himself. So let's look at these two things. The story, that, what does the story of the widow and the gentle tell them about themselves and tell us about ourselves? Now, these two stories, this, uh, this widow and this general, one's rich, one poor. One's a woman, one's a man. One's powerful, one's weak. Uh, they're both outsiders. But they have two things in common at the end of the day that matter. Both are needy. One is desperately hungry. The other is desperately sick. They are needy, right? They are needy. And the second thing is they submit to God's plan. They're asked to do something. Feed me, he says to the widow, wash in the river, and they do it. They are needy and they submit to God's words. Now, these stories teach us, they teach us several things, but one thing they teach us is that the kingdom of God is often for the materially poor and it is only for the spiritually poor. Let me say that again. God's kingdom, God's message is often for the material poor, but it is only for the spiritually poor. You have a man and a woman, a rich person and a poor person, but these stories are illustration of the, of the, of the scripture reading. They are poor. They are they're need, they're captives in need of free. They are blind in need of sight. In their own ways, both the widow and the general are poor, sick, blind, in prison. They are needy. Their backs are against the wall, and they need God. I mean, one of the themes of the Gospel of Luke, and all the Gospels, but especially the Gospel of Luke, is that the Gospel is for the least, the lost, the less, and the lonely. The least, the lost, the less, and the lonely. And Naaman and the widow are these people. The least, the lost, the less, and the lonely. They know they have a need. The people in the synagogue don't believe they have a need. They don't think they are that bad. Remember, they think we are good, that we are good, and we just need a Messiah to come and kick the bad people out. That's what they think. We're not bad like this. We're good. We just need a Messiah to get rid of these bad people. Friends, how often do we live like that? How often do we pray like that? Jesus, deliver us from the Republicans. Jesus, deliver us from the Democrats. 
Jesus, deliver us from the Russians and the North Koreans. Jesus, deliver my child from this public school. We're good. You're the Messiah. Deliver us from the bad people. Deliver us. No. We are the needy people. We are the widow. We are the general with the leprosy. We are the people in need. And Jesus doesn't come to deliver us from our enemies necessarily. Not in this day. He comes to bring healing. And you see, one way to... He comes to people who know they are spiritually poor. And often they're materially poor. I mean, what is his first sermon in the book of Matthew? Blessed are the poor in spirit. He comes to people who are spiritually poor. And one way... One way of gauging your temperature of how well you know your spiritual poverty, how well you know your spiritual poverty, is actually how you think about and treat the materially poor. One way you know how, 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 if you really view yourself as spiritually poor, is actually how you think about and treat those who are materially poor, socially poor, Outcast, immigrants, but also closer to home. People that just aren't like us, right? People that, you know, they're not just exactly like us. How do you treat people who are not like you, who have less than you? Grace Presbyterian Church, will we be a church that makes space for the materially poor? Will we be a church that makes space and welcomes the socially poor, the people that just, they may live on the North Shore, but they don't fit in some way? Because I know if you feel poor in any way, going to church in Winnetka, it ain't real easy. It takes a lot of gospel guts to come to this church. I mean, we're a welcoming church, but it takes some gospel guts. And my question is, will we welcome North Shore Church, the alcoholic? Will we welcome the adulterer? Will we welcome the addict, the rebellious child, the person who doesn't fit, the business pride, the person who cheated in business on their taxes? Will we welcome? What about the people who don't wear all the golf shirts that, we wear, that I wear? <laughs> who don't carry Louis luggage, Louis Vuitton luggage, right? Our spiritual power, do you know your spiritual? It doesn't mean you can't have those things. I got all those golf shirts. But do you know your spiritual poverty? Because the gospel only comes to people who feel their need. Only, often for the materially poor, only for the spiritually poor, do you know your poverty? Or are you like those people in that synagogue, like I am so often, thinking I'm the good person. I just need you, Jesus, to deliver me from these bad people. Save my child. So that's the first thing they want to kill him, what he says about them. But second thing that upsets them and they want to kill him is what he says about himself. What he says about himself. Because he says the spirit. Think about this. This is so narcissistic. You would fire me. You should fire me if I preached like this a minute about myself. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. (laughs) Uh, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Aren't you lucky? I mean, think about what he is saying. He's saying it's all about me. And what what they want, the Nazarenes want, and so often what we want, they want Jesus to be a help to them. They want Jesus to kind of be mildly important, to kind of come alongside them and help them in all these different ways. What they don't want Jesus to be and what we struggle to want Jesus to be is to be our all in all. We, want him, we struggle to make him the ultimate over everything, the ultimate, demanding everything from us, demanding our lives, our jobs, our houses, our families, our money, our net worth, demanding it all. He's saying, I am the Lord. 
I am the Lord. I'm not just here to kind of help you out a little bit, have you fix this problem. I am the Lord. You know, C.S. Lewis has made famous this, this line of thinking that I'm about to give you. I've given it to you before. Because people look at the life of Jesus and they're like, man, that is a really good moral teacher. He is, he is a really good moral teacher. You know, turn the other cheek. You know, all the other things that he says that are so lovely. Jesus, that's not an option. Because he says things like this. The spirit of the Lord is on me. <laughs> I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right? As C.S. Lewis famously says, you can't, he, he has not left the option of merely a good teacher open. He is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is the Lord. He is who he says he is. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? And I think there's some level, you know, this is the reason they want to kill him. They want to kill him because of what they, he says about them and what he says about himself. And at some level, I don't know how to flesh this out really, but I do think that at some level, until you really feel like you want to kill Jesus, you really haven't wrestled with it. You really have to get to that point. That's why I love it on Good Friday services when we say, crucify him. The crowd has to say, crucify him. Until you get to that point where you realize just how offensive what he and his message mean for you. Who he is and what he is saying about us. Which brings me back. Which brings me back, and I conclude with this, the omission I made. The omission that Jesus made, I should say. Because remember, he preached. And he says, the year of the Lord's favor. And he he, you know, this is the word of the Lord, and he sits down. He doesn't read the next line. What is the next line? The day of vengeance of our God. Why does he not read that line? Why does he not read that line? He doesn't quote that line because it wasn't that day. The day of vengeance was coming, but it wasn't that day when he's beginning his ministry. But three years later, the day of God's vengeance was coming. And he would live into that. Because instead of being cast down a hill, like they tried to do here, Jesus climbs up a hill called Calvary, and he gives his life on a cross for the sins of the world. You see, Jesus experiences the vengeance of God. The vengeance of God is not throwing down the Romans in, in this power play. It is Jesus climbing on a cross and giving himself for the life of the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that he, in that moment, was made sin. He was made bad for us. He became our substitute to forgive our sins. You see, friends, the day of vengeance was not for God's enemies first. The day of God's vengeance was for God himself. It was for God himself. You see, the only way that evil can ultimately be defeated, evil is not ultimately taken down by a sword or by a battle. The only way evil is ever overcome is when evil is absorbed. Like blood in a sponge, like a spear in a heart, the only way evil can be overcome is by substitution. Death by love. Which is why three years after this, Jesus will climb that hill and give his life for the sins of the world. He is not the Messiah who comes to fix good people and give us deliverance. He is the Messiah who comes for needy people and give us life and forgiveness and everything. This is the What a way to start a ministry. What a way to preach your first sermon in your hometown church. What a way. What a savior. Let me pray. God, we, I don't get this. I don't get the story I just preached. I don't get the love. I don't get the substitution. 
Lord, I pray that in some small measure, by your spirit, by the sacrament that we're about to take, that you would help us to take just one small step closer to understanding who we are and, more importantly, who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, be with us for Christ's sake. Amen.